many Klingons does it take to change a light bulb? How many? None, because the Klingons aren't afraid of the dark. Shut up, Wesley. <laughs> yeah, that's probably true. They probably would kill the dark. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> with honor. Yeah, would, with, with honor. Yeah. yeah, I like that one. I heard a version of it that said it was uh, two. One to change the bulb and another one to execute the dead bulb for failing to do its duty to the Empire. <laughs> God, you could riff all day on that, on that joke. Really. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we, we've got some, some Star Trek news, don't we? It sounds like it. Yeah. Bill, have you have you heard about the uh, the two new films that were announced? Yes, indeed you do. Two new films, uh, Tarantino Trek and um, J.J. And then, Trek 4. Yeah. And supposedly the Tarantino one is in an alternate timeline or a different yeah. timeline. Yeah. I, I, I'm not sure if I buy that yet, yeah. but I think – I think what I think is going to happen, because with them talking about doing a uh, time travel caper involving mm -hmm. uh, Papa Kirk, George Kirk, Chris Hemsworth, I think what we're going to see is, uh, my personal feeling is that they're catching on to the trend now to make a, a single movie so big it has to be more than one. Yeah. You know, like uh, Harry Potter Part 7 was two movies. Mm -hmm. Um. The Hobbit was three movies. <laughs> well, now uh, Avengers now. Avengers is going to be two movies to tell one story. Yeah. Mm -hmm. you know, Infinity War Part 1, Infinity War Part 2. Yeah, so I think what we're going to see is it's going to be a Star Trek time travel caper that's going to take two movies to tell because either they succeed in saving George Kirk in the first film and it changes everything, or they don't succeed, and it makes things so much worse. So that it's it's the JJ crew dealing with an alternate universe, an alternate alternate universe. That'd be cool. That's my theory. It's going to be two films that are one film, but it's instead of having a five-hour Star Trek movie, they're going to have two two and a half-hour Star Trek movies. What do you think, Mark? Um, I think that's a, I think that's a pretty solid prediction. Um, the question is 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 that really the thing they should be doing? Mm -hmm. um, you know, look at the Hobbit and all the history and how long that book has been out. Look at you know it took them what eighteen films to set up Infinity War, um, yeah. a two part time travel caper um, as cool as that could be with Quentin Tarantino. I think it's going to be possibly too insidery for film audiences outside of the Star Trek community. And because um, they haven't done the legwork of setting all that backstory and the stakes. And I, I don't know, you know, um, I don't disagree with what you're saying. I think that's a pretty good prediction. But is that the best? You know, time travel is a mixed bag in Star Trek. They, yeah. You know, I know I, I pitched to um, Deep Space Nine and Voyager when they were on the air many years ago. And sort of the instructions very clearly they gave us is do not pitch us time travel stories. Do not pitch us transporter stories um, because those are 
and don't pitch us stories where we see so-and-so's grandfather, son, cousin, girlfriend, blah, blah, blah. Because those are sort of crutches, um, what they called Star Trek helper, mm-hmm. that, that they use when it's time for sweeps. And um, and they're very insidery stories, especially. And arguably, that was one of the things that hurt Enterprise early off was the time travel um, plot, the sort of the temporal Cold War. Mm-hmm. Um so I don't know. I, they're, you know, if that's what they do, I think that's a little bit of a gamble. Plus, doing another movie period with that involves the JJ crew might also be considered a gamble, and having it be R-rated, which seems to be what they've talked about with Tarantino, I think that may be the biggest gamble of all. Yeah. So, yeah, the R-rated thing I definitely think is a gamble. The 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 JJ crew, it doesn't do well in the U.S., but internationally it's doing much right. bigger. So I you're think right. they're trying to appeal. So they, uh, that one doesn't worry me as much. Sure. Yeah. But yeah, the R-rated JJ Trek. Although I, I don't know if it actually is going to be R-rated. I think that's just people uh, judging. Tarantino by his reputation. Yeah. Sure. And certainly Tarantino has done a lot of uncredited work, um, script rewrites and such that were not, um, you know, extreme or R rated or anything like that. Hmm. So, you know, certainly they could reel him back in on that, but you know, who knows? Um, I think, yeah, doing it R rated is a big, gamble they're playing with fire and you have to ask yourself why what like i mean that's kind of been the story with discovery which is sort of the series of um and i like discovery but there's been a lot of like unforced errors that they've (laughs) done there with um and and you just kind of go why are you you don't need to do this Mm -hmm. you don't you know if if you're going to do something that's outside the box and uh edgy and you think you'll get something from it dramatically in the story, um, great. But if you're just doing stuff to shake it up and say, we don't want to be like what came before, um, we're going to have an R-rated Star Trek because nobody's done that before, frankly, that shock, that strikes me more as some studio executive's ego than it does um, a, a real plot reason to do it. Mm-hmm. So, but who knows? Um, it may not be. I'd like to think they're going to rein it in. They will lose a lot of audience, um, whether it's in the U.S. <laughs> or overseas, by making it be an R-rated movie. Yeah. Um, you you lose tons of people that way, and that seems very counterintuitive. Um, I have a weird feeling what we may end up getting is the theatrical release will be PG-13 or thereabouts. And then after they do that and do the Blu-ray and do the DVD and all that, then they'll say, oh, hey, by the way, here's the R-rated Tarantino director's cut. cut. Yeah. And they'll sell more DVDs that way. Yeah. (laughs) That would be a shrewd move. Um, And and probably that would be the best – certainly that would be the best way to placate uh, Tarantino, Mm -hmm. Um, especially since if he'll negotiate himself some kind of a – a deal to get the sales through that. Yeah, he gets a cut of both sales. Mm. It's kind of like like how many how many cuts of Blade Runner were there really? I mean, they just keep <laughs> selling. And you know, Blade Runner was good, but 
I've never felt it really lived up to the hype of people who, oh, it's like one of the greatest tech noir masterpieces in the history of sci-fi. It just, meh. Well, I, I don't disagree with that. They got there first. That's the thing yeah. is they, they got there first. And yeah. um, there's a lot of movies that are considered classics or legendary that upon further scrutiny probably don't withstand the test of time but are held up because they broke some new ground that, that nobody had really done before. And I put Blade Runner in that, you know. Yeah. I mean, um, it was it was a good film. It was just kind of it didn't live up to the hype. Yeah, I mean, it's not like it was a, you know, not that box office success always guarantees quality. In fact, if anything, it's the opposite. But um, Blade Runner's never been a big moneymaker. So it has a very limited appeal to a certain kind of movie fan. Uh, your sci-fi, your um, critic types. But you're right. It's not really connected on a broad level. Never has. No matter how many recuts or director's cuts or sequels they do to it, it's unlikely. But that doesn't mean it's not still cool and, um, you know, isn't worthy of the status it's gotten. But I, I just think it, it got there first, you know. And sometimes you get to – you get a little bit of – you get bonus points for that. <laughs> so I'm going to move us along because we forgot to do the introductions. Oh, yeah, I should probably do that. Welcome to the Final Frontier, the Star Trek fan film podcast with all your exciting news, well, some of your exciting news about uh, the latest events in Star Trek, the fan film community, and various forms of creative expression. Our special guest today, the... uh... (laughs) Let's see if you can get my name right. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I had to the, watch the, the uh sorry, I had to watch the, the, the trailer uh, that that you're in to uh to be able to pronounce your last name, Mark. That's <laughs> the story of my life. Yeah, it's pronounced Nacaredo. Um that's the Americanized pronunciation of it. Um it's Italian, so it's pronounced differently over in Europe. But yeah. Um my name's Mark Nacaredo. I am the Writer, director, executive producer of the fan film The Romulan War. And thanks for inviting me on the show. Of course. We're, we're happy to, to have you. So, Bill, go ahead and, uh, and complete the introduction, please. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Mark Nacarado. <laughs> I still got it wrong. <laughs> you just said it. Tomato, tomato, you know. Uh, I'm not going to edit that out. I'm just going to let Bill that always drove me. That that, that always drove me. That always drove me crazy because nobody says tomato. I've never heard anyone say tomato. Who says tomato? Serial killers say tomato. If you say tomato, you need to be locked up. Right. So I should remember. I should remember and get it right. It's Mark Nacaredo. And if only you were the first person to butcher my name. But, you know, much like Blade Runner got there first, um, Sci-Fi Noir, you did not get there first with trashing my name. (laughs) Well, I'm I'm glad you stopped me to give me the – I mean, because I'm a little bit groggy. haven't quite woke up yet. I came close to saying it's Mark Naruto. (laughs) (laughs) It's 10 a.m. where you're at. Anime legend. Uh, yeah. Yeah. There we go. Let's move on to the, uh, the question of the week. So Mark, I like to, 
to do this trivia type thing. Uh, mm-hmm. And since the Romulan War is set just after Enterprise, I I thought I'd make it Enterprise themed. And okay. I'll be honest, I literally came up with this like five minutes before uh, you know we started this because I totally forgot that uh, the question that I have for next time is Voyager themed. So I was like, oh, no, that's not going to work. I need Enterprise. So, okay. How many wives did Dr. Phlox have? Was it three, two, or five? And you guys don't have to answer. Just think about it. Even if you know it, we'll come back to it later in the episode. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> and then there will be a, uh, there will be a bonus follow up question. So yeah, I just, thought it, but I, you know, not to you know preempt, but I I thought it was three, but I could be wrong. You could be wrong. You could be. I could be. I guess we'll find out. Bill, do you think you know it? Uh, I'll hazard a wild guess, but I have absolutely no clue on that one. What's the, your wild the, guess? As, three. As he, three? So as, as he, I hear a computer click, he's going to memory alpha. He's like, oh, okay. How many wives no. do Dr. Flox have? Oh, Dr. Flox. I was thinking Dr. McCoy. I'm not oh. even awake. Oh, head. awkward. <laughs> <laughs> no, Dr. Flox. Yeah, didn't Dr. McCoy have three ex-wives? Uh, I, I think it's just one. I don't know. I don't remember. I don't know. It seems like he kept running into the one who got away. Yeah, I don't think she was an ex-wife though. Like with the with the uh, the salt monster. The salt monster was one. I don't think she was an ex-wife though. Um, there was another one. They went to some planet to save someone, and it was somebody from McCoy. He's got a lot of ladies in his past. Yeah. Oh, and then uh, he's got um, one of the Daxes uh, that uh, apparently you know met him at a gymnastics meet, and because uh, he had like what incredible hands or something. <laughs> yeah, and I gotta wonder. It's like, why, why is he hanging around a gymnastics meet? Why, why, why is McCoy? Well, you know, he could have been like, uh, you know, there the in Olympic case someone medic. needed medical attention. Yeah, you know, they they do a triple backflip and pull a hammy. They've got Doctor McCoy. On. Okay, yeah, that makes yeah. sense. I was just like, it's kind of a creepy place to go and hang out yeah. for fun, especially when you end up meeting somebody. It's like, hey, you're you're a gymnast. Well, I'm a doctor. Let's. Uh, Let's go talk about this. How you doing? All right, so let's let's move on to the interview. Are you ready, Mark? I am ready. All right, I have prepared. Synthahol consumed. Um, I'm ready. <laughs> Excellent. Question number one: How did you first get into Star Trek? Oh well, um, interestingly enough, that ties in a little bit to the inspiration for the Romulan War. Um, the first time I saw Star Trek was um, I grew up um, in uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania um, in the 70s and 80s. And every Sunday we would go to my grandparents' house for uh, Sunday Italian dinner. And we would watch the Pittsburgh Steelers run all over everybody. And um, after that, we we would – my uncle especially um, – would turn on the syndicated Star Trek. And so that was almost like a Sunday custom was watching um, Kirk and crew, um, you know, uh, fight aliens and, and, you know, Captain Kirk chasing ladies and, you know, (laughs) Scotty trying to keep the ship together and Spock with a witty rejoinder and McCoy. So yeah, that was, um, and also one of the other things that we would watch, um, 
would be The World at War, which was a, um, a documentary uh, series that the Brits produced. I think it was Thames Television, um, and it ran on PBS here in the U.S. at the time. So sort of both of those things, that sort of Star Trek and um, – and the World at War, these World War II documentaries um, were both something that really captured my imagination at the time. And um, arguably, that's how eventually we evolved to or my my uh, it was the logical extension for the Romulan War, because the Romulan War does have a similar structure to what those uh, World War II documentaries have. So. Um, so, yeah, that's how I first got into Star Trek was, you know, watching it. Uh, and then it would come on after school and stuff in the afternoon. And um, my interest was really revived in Trek when the next generation started appearing in new episodes. And that was when I was about ready to graduate high school. So um, and at the time, you know, Next Gen was pretty much the only game in town for science fiction on television. Um, and its success is the reason why we have so much sci-fi on TV now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's that's kind of that's how I got into Star Trek. So would you say that the Next Generation is your favorite series? Um, I am nostalgically fond for the Next Generation. I like a lot of their high concept stories. Um, but I would say overall, my favorite series is going to be Deep Space Nine. And, um, I just felt more connected, um, to the characters and the overall, I do like the large story arcs that was really revolutionary for, um, for Star Trek Mm -hmm. and really for science fiction storytelling at the time. Um, though certainly Babylon five was doing a similar thing. Um, yeah, I, I really, really take to Deep Space Nine. Um, I would say that's my favorite, favorite series. So what's your favorite film? Film? Um, I'm going to go ahead and say Star Trek VI, believe it or not. Wow. Um, I, um, I, I guess the, the reasoning for that may be because, um, Right at that time, I had just kind of started paying attention to world events and politics, and I thought that um, Six was a really good integration of real-life contemporary events that were happening at the time Mm -hmm. translated um, into a sci-fi setting on the big screen. So, um, you know, sometimes there's always a certain amount of politics in a lot of science fiction, but... Mm -hmm. You don't really see it a lot at the movies, or you didn't back in back at those times. And I thought that was kind of neat because that sort of jived with my sort of interest in current events and and um, political stuff. So I liked um, I liked Star Trek Six, and I thought they had some good villains, some good stakes. Um, you know, I liked the sort of they continued on that sort of militaristic feel of what of Starfleet and its regimentation of procedures and. Um, I, I just felt like um, it was a good way to for the original crew to go out. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought it was a great send off for for the original cast. Yeah, it's a good film. It's one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. Bill, do you have any follow up questions so far? 
Yeah, I was going. I would have guessed that you would have been a fan of uh, Star Trek uh, Two, given the uh, yeah subject matter of your uh, fan film. The, the whole ship combat aspect, the mm-hmm. duel between Khan and Kirk, between yeah. the Enterprise and the Reliant. That was my yeah, guess. yeah. I mean, you know, you, you, when you ask me what is my favorite film, um, I'm gonna say six, but only by barely. Um, okay. I, Khan is. Uh, you know, second right behind it. Um, I yeah, I Khan is hard to um, live up to, and I think certainly into darkness. I don't think really did <laughs> when they tried yeah. to. Make it. Um, I mean, I, I I saw it as a failed homage more than an attempt to to remake it, and they should have left out all the Chekhov stuff because it just took away from it. More people were worried about Chekhov dying than they were about Kirk. <laughs> yeah, he, he became a red shirt. Yeah, and it's like, no, they wouldn't. Well, they no, they wouldn't. Well, they might. Right. <laughs> and he's running through the ship, and it's like the ship's blowing up. It's like, is 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 Chekhov gonna make it? <laughs> oh, look, here's Kirk doing his thing. What about Chekhov? Because it's more likely they would kill Chekhov than uh, than Kirk. Yeah. And it would have been a killed kill because this is a alternate universe. It's like the the whole point of doing that was to try to they they did they're making prequels. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They can call it they can call it a reboot. They can call it an alternate universe, but it's a prequel. Eventually, it'll end up where it always ended up. So you know everybody lives. So it takes away some of that dramatic tension, mm-hmm. unless. They really play up this alternate universe thing, and now it's like it's an alternate universe. Anything can happen. No one is safe. So, Mark, do you have a favorite fan film? Um, sure. I, you know, I really am fond of Axanar, though I gotta admit it really outraged me at the time because they beat us to the punch. <laughs> um, we had already been working, or I had, I'd been working on a, the sim, almost the exact, it was the same exact format for several years. And, mm-hmm. uh, my writing partner and I, um, saw Axanar and went, oh crap, they, someone beat us to it. So, uh-huh. <laughs> um, that's my only, that's, that's the thing that always sticks in the back of my, uh, about Axanar though. I really, I really did like Axanar. Um, there were some great episodes of Continues in the last batch that they did. Um, and another, uh, there's another f- sort of fan film series that hasn't been talked about a lot is, or the films that um, Aaron Vanderclay is doing out of Australia. And if folks haven't seen those yet, um, I think he's done two, and I know he's working on the third one now. Um, you should check those out. Those take place during the Enterprise era, um, and they're very well done, short, looking at about anywhere from seven to 12 minute long, uh, mini movies that, um, you know, they build a great set. Um, there's some good acting in that. And, um, those don't seem to get a lot of attention, uh, among fans, certainly even in the fan film community. I, w- I wish more people would go see what Aaron's working on because he's doing a bang up job down there um he's the little engine that could he just like me he doesn't have the big sort of axonar continues budgets i think those days are over um 
with those kinds of budgets and that the, the professional actors that are um, coming onto the onto the fan films. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, Aaron stuff's really good, um, and there's a lot of good stuff out there, um, and and hopefully, um, we're hoping that by the time the Romulan War is completed, we'll we'll be able to get uh, up in that in that level too. So. Well. Uh, looking at the the feedback you've that you've received, uh, like on the trailer and elsewhere, it looks like a lot of people are are really excited for it, and they they feel that it's really up there in quality. Uh, well, I hope so. I mean, I do have a um, I do have a film background, um, and then we've got some really good special effects that are being done, and um, but you know, it is what it is. A lot of people. Um, and I talked about Axonar before and how they got there before we did. Um, but in some ways, I'm, I'm kind of glad that happened because the whole notion of uh, this sort of documentary, this documentary approach um, is kind of in people's minds now. So it's not as heavy a lift for them to wrap their minds, minds around it. There is no sort of um, standard in, in our film, there's not a standard, you know, here's these eight crew members on this one ship and we built a bridge and a corridor and there's, you know, they're walking in and doing their thing and having camaraderie. And but that, that's not the format um, that we're following. And I think that's what a lot of fans expected to see prior to Axonar. So in some mm-hmm. ways we're kind of grateful that <laughs> Axonar broke that ground for us. <laughs> Because it, it's it's a little different of a format than I think um, fans expect to see. Um, like I said, it's very similar to these the World at War or even Ken Burns Civil War. Um, yeah, that was I was going to mention. It's like before Axanar, I'd only ever seen one mm-hmm. documentary fan film, and that was uh, Ken Burns' Star Wars. That's what they called it because they tried to do it like almost identical to his style for the Civil War film. Cool. I, I haven't was, seen that one. It, it's on YouTube somewhere. Yeah, Ken Burns' Star Wars. Just type in that <laughs> in the right. search and it'll pop up. And it's it's got like they, – they, they do like tintype photographs, so it's like washed out in black and white. And they've got people reading the correspondence from Admiral Thrawn and Princess right. Leia and things like that. It's I'll a definitely pretty neat look out. at the whole thing. It's it's it was it's like when I saw that it's like well that's what I liked about uh, Prelude to Axanar. They were doing for Star Trek what that film did for Star Wars, and it's like it would have been a clever gimmick. I mean, there were aspects of it that I was like, no, you're trying to put too much into it. You're trying to tie it, trying too hard to tie it to Star Trek by you know having the Enterprise in there. You don't need that you don't even need to mention the constitution class there were there were other things i could nitpick about it that bugged me but that was just i, I think it was because they they worked on individual scenes as it was like in a lot of ways i watched that movie and it felt like you were watching 10 two-minute films instead of watching a 20-minute coherent thing straight straight through mm-hmm. Which works with a documentary because you're getting little clips of different things, but some of the clips kind of contradicted other clips. And that was the thing that drove me nuts. It's like they had the Ramirez speech. As long as we hold true to who we are and stay the Federation, we'll be all right. 
And then it's like, yeah, the reason he was winning was he could fight like a Klingon. No, don't say that. Oh, yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah. So, Mark, what made you want to get into fan films? Um, well, you know, like I said, I've been a lifelong Star Trek fan. Mm-hmm. Um, my, you know... Uh, my training or education was primarily in film and video production. Um, I made a couple films in college and I did a, <clears throat> did a low budget thing back in the early two thousands. So, uh, but then, you know, I had, I got married and had some kids and got another full-time job that's not related to film. So I've been out of, um, filmmaking, video making, all that for, a while over over wow close to 15 years and um and i guess this is my my uh you know as my wife says it's my midlife crisis so (laughs) she's grateful i'm doing this and not trying to buy a sports car um (laughs) but yeah i've always um this is an idea like i said um an idea that originated frankly when we first heard that um there was going to be a prequel um, when, when they announced Enterprise. And, um, you know, like I said, a, a filmmaking friend of mine, we're having coffee uh, here in Nashville, and we were talking about what would that be like? What would the prequel to the original series look like? What would that be like? This was before anybody knew anything specifically about what Enterprise would be other than it was a prequel. And um, I just became fascinated with this idea of, you know, if I was doing it, uh, I would have the pilot be a two-hour thing where it's Pearl Harbor. And, um, you know, all the Starfleet people at the time were peaceful explorers and had quickly had to learn how to prepare for war, and it was against the Romulans. And this would be the missing chapter of the Romulan War we never saw. And... um, so I just became consumed with that idea, and of course, Enterprise wasn't that. Um, and so I just, you know, that that was sort of something that I, you know, I pull out my notebook and write down an idea about, you know, like here's this war. We know it lasts four years. The neutral zones created. What what does that look like? And so notes in a book, and then it's drawing some ideas and storyboards, and then it was you know, writing some script passages and, and, and so on and so forth. And, um, and then I wanted to get back into filmmaking. So that, that was all kind of the transition. Um, we almost, or I should say, I almost decided to scrap the whole idea once Axonar came out because I figured what's the point, you know, people will say I'm ripping it off and mm-hmm. it's kind of been done. And, and, uh, you know, my friends said to me, um, no, keep keep going. If you want to make it, make it. You know, because it's a doc, a doc, uh, you can keep the budget low um, by you know having a lot of your performances just be in an interview setting. Yeah. Uh, and I'd already done that before um, in my film from two thousand and two thousand and two. It was called The Crusader. It was basically a um, a superhero movie disguised as a reality show. And, um, it was, we played it at some, uh, local comic conventions and that's when I got married and had kids. So we didn't really promote it. It's on, you know, it's on YouTube and hardly anybody's seen it, but, um, that was back in 02. 
so I'm kind of familiar with that. Uh, that's where I got familiar with the sort of ideas. You know, if you if you frame it as a documentary, it's a good way to cut costs. You don't have to have seven actors on the set at the same time. Um, you can do it at their schedule. You can do it at your schedule. Um, but what's really, uh, you know, from a production standpoint, and we talk about that later, is um, this has a lot of visual effects in it. And um, primarily that's um, why we're even doing the Indiegogo is to um, – because a lot of our footage, a lot of our production footage, not all of it, but a lot of it's already been been filmed. And so we're playing catch up a lot on trying to get the post, you know. So anyway, I a long story short is uh, what made me want to get into fan films is this is sort of me getting back into filmmaking. And it's not an overly time uh, and expense consuming endeavor. Uh, I have several good friends who are making, you know, original narrative independent films and they're looking for deals and distribution and i am keenly aware at how much time and um expense this is costing them um and i'm trying to avoid all that because i again i have a day job and a a wife and three kids Mm -hmm. so i'm trying to get this done in a scale that i can manage um and plus, I, like I said, I like a lot of the fan films, and they're really well done. And um, I know that that uh, I have the the skills and the talent here, based in Nashville, to be able to pull a lot of the production off. Bill, do you have any follow up? Yeah. Um, so when Enterprise actually came out, were you upset that they went with the NX design? Would you rather have seen a Daedalus class? on screen or were you okay with what they did? Um, I, you know, I, I like the, I like the Daedalus class ship. I always have. Um, and we've had, you've seen in the trailers, we use the Daedalus somewhat frequently. Mm-hmm. Um, we've redesigned it. It's a lot more leaner than the older Matt Jeffrey's original concept sketch. And even the version you've seen in some of the other fan films, I like, of all the versions of the Daedalus, I think ours is is the coolest. Um, of course, I'm going to say that, right? Um, but um, no, well, I we I, agree I, with you. Um, shh, don't tell anybody. <laughs> <laughs> Our secret. Um, no, I really like the NX. I've always liked the NX. There were some things that in the first season, especially, bothered me about Enterprise, but. Um, you know, like all fans, and we all have our pet peeves and things we think we could do better if, you know, let us have the money and the <laughs> cast. And, um, but, but the design of the Enterprise was not one of them. I thought they got all the tech right. Um, the, the uh, you know, just sort of the design of the ship, how it looked. It was more, you know, functional. It was gunmetal gray. It wasn't elaborate. It wasn't. Um, I, I thought the design and the exterior design of the Enterprise was that, – that none of that stuff was something I had a problem with. Uh, I would have thought that we would have seen a Daedalus-class ship in Enterprise before it went off the air just to – just as some sort of fan service to make the fans happy. And I'm not really sure why they didn't do that. Um, I think that was a missed opportunity. But we're picking up that ball and running with it. So <laughs> we've got – more Daedalus class ships than you can handle in, in this in this series, <laughs> in, this, in this film. Mark, what can you tell us about your fan film, The Romulan War? 
Well, um, uh, it, it covers the whole because this is some of the questions I've already heard were, does it cover the whole period of the war? Yes, mm-hmm. it does. Um, assuming that we are able to fund it correctly. Um, because like I said, um, the effects, uh, the, the, there's some art, artwork that needs done. There's post, um, you know, some audio work, assuming we can get hit our fundraising targets. Like we want to hit those. Yes. It will cover the whole span of the war. Um, uh, you'll see several, uh, incidents that have been referred to, um, in Star Trek lore, Star Trek canon, and we illustrate those and dramatize those events that you may have heard about. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, like I said before, we don't stick with one crew and one character set. Um, we cover a, a several different tracks. Um, we talk about um, uh, through our um, – we have a team of experts – who are, are like, we have an, uh, if you looked at our website and saw who some of our cast members were, we have an historian, uh, from memory alpha. We have, um, uh, Zephram Cochran's descendant. Uh, we have a Tao Shiar, uh, agent. who's one of the last members or actually the last member of the Tao Shiar who is dying and giving up all the secrets about the Romulan war from the Romulan side that we didn't know about before. And we have a Starfleet Admiral um, and a couple other characters we haven't, we haven't talked about yet. So through these people, they, um, they will track sort of different topics. We, we talk a lot about the science, the um, like with every major conflict you see scientific improvements or advances, I should say, not necessarily improvements, but advances. Um, we talk about some of the advancements that Earth uh, and, and even some of the other coalition's planets make. Um, we talk about political developments surrounding the war on all sides. We talk about – because you know politics is an important aspect um, and foreign, foreign policy, diplomacy – um, we talk about political developments that happened on Romulus at the time um, and uh, on Earth, uh, particularly the struggle for Earth to keep its coalition partners on board, um, which they're uh, successful and not so successful on as the war goes on. And we also talk about some developments going on on Vulcan and Andoria. And how all of this has ripple effects across the entire war. And we also explore um, the launch of a new class of starship, um, which is the first and only battleship that Starfleet uh, launched. And what that, if you, you know, Trek Yards has already uh, shown us the Yorktown class battleship. We've talked a little bit about it on our website mm-hmm. and um, it's basically sort of the way that earth gets its game gets back in the game um, when it comes to the war. So, so we're tracking a few different topics there and we also have um, sort of these, you know, uh, journal entries and letters and found footage um, from people who were affected by the war, 
Um, whether you're talking military or civilian or alien, uh, we have moments like that as well to sort of show us the personal impact um, that the war has on has on folks. So what year does it take place like the, you know, the documentary part of it? Because I noticed that uh, that your Romulan uh, mentions, you know, that Romulus is now dust. So I'm presuming that this is after uh, what we see in the 2009 movie. So it's 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 at least 2387. Well, that's the framing device. That's you're correct. So the framing device is um, all of our storytellers, um, the uh, Kovalis, who's the Romulan, as well as Dr. Chambers at Memory Alpha and Hannah Cochran at Alpha Centauri. All of our storytellers exist in the 24th century post the destruction of Romulus. Mm-hmm. Do you, and do you have a so specific year? 2390. Oh, okay. Yeah. So the way to think about it is, and, and, and this is like insidery nerd, you know, <laughs> baseball, I guess. Um, the way to think about it is if you were on Picard's Enterprise – and you wanted to find out about the Romulan War, you would go to a computer panel, enter a few buttons, and this documentary from Memory Alpha would pop up and you would watch it. Uh So it was produced as a... That's the framing device. It was made in the 2390s, and it's covering the period um, during the Romulan War. And one of the reasons that makes it more interesting now in the 2390s is they've just been able to finally get um, testimony from Kovalis mm-hmm. now that the, the Romulans are, are almost an extinct species now. Um, so that's sort of the new, you know, sort of like, you know, if you were watching a World War II documentary 30 years ago, and then uh, we find some new information was revealed, and then this production company went and made an updated version of the documentary. Maybe use some old interviews, but they're adding new stuff to it. So I know it's kind of complicated, and um, but um, it, it it will explain itself whenever whenever you see the finished film. Okay, that's cool. I like the idea. So yeah, yeah that uh, was the that was one of the things that worried me. I mean, I'm not a uh... I'm not a, a, a hardcore crazy stickler. Oh, you got this detail wrong. You're not a real fan. But, <laughs> but I mean, I remember that was that was a, a hook used on TOS. Was nobody had seen a Romulan. Nobody knew what they looked like even during the war. And if you were doing a uh, documentary right after the war, it's like, uh, how how come you're interviewing a Romulan? How come everybody knows what a Romulan looks like before the Enterprise even had its little but, you know, since you put the hook in the 24th century and you're looking back 200 years, that right. helps fit that. Yeah. Right. Right. And, um, and, and this is kind of a separate but related topic. Um, just, you know, there um, – we do address in this uh, – the notion that by Kirk's time, nobody knew what Romulans looked like. Um, we kind of dispel that. Um, there are people that knew what Romulans looked like, but for various reasons, they never got to tell anybody. Mm-hmm. So um, you got to you got to figure that um, certainly in our story, the the conflict doesn't just happen in space; it also happens 
Um, there are some incursions that happen on the ground. Um, and certainly there would be instances where um, the Starfleet or your Makos or whatever would come face to face with what they thought were Romulans. Yeah. And, um, and may have even encountered real Romulans, but then it was clear that, you know, looking at the political implications of what people might do when they learned what Romulans look like and how that could affect the coalition Mm -hmm. politically and diplomatically, you know, perhaps choices were made to suppress that information. So we explore some of that as well. Um, I like that. I like have you that. ever uh, have you read the uh, the post Enterprise books? Yes, yes, I've read those. Um, I haven't seen the. I, I guess there's a bunch of stuff that Fossa did, and I haven't seen any of that though. Uh, but yeah, I read the Enterprise novels. Um, you know, I I liked the first book, but I thought the second. Ooh, I had some issues with the second book. I didn't think it was fleshed out as well. It probably should have been broken into two books. Um, I think that was an editorial decision to try and combine uh, two books into one for the second yeah. second chapter. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I have read those. Um, there's not – yeah, so – yeah, I felt like Under the Raptor's Wing needed to be more than one book. So I was like, this is the entire war in one book. I, I kind of wanted there to be more. <laughs> well, there's Beneath the Raptor's Wing, and then they did this. There's a second book. I can't remember what the second one was called. Um, I have it in the other room. I know they have the ones where it's now the Federation. I, I own them, but I haven't gotten around to reading them yet. Right. Those are those are post-war yeah. Um Archer and T'Pol and all them um, making their, like, setting up the Federation. Those actually, um, I kind of like those books. Um, Some of them aren't as strong as others, but, you know, there's, that's the thing is, is what they're doing consistent with the canon of both Enterprise and what will come to be in the Kirk era um, and I think they've done, uh, I think Christopher Bennett's been the one writing all those books and I think he's been doing a, a pretty solid job on those. Levels. Now, when you're reading through the, uh, the, well, it's not really canon, but the official novelization of the post enterprise era stuff that talks about the Romulan war, um, did you have any more of those moments like you did with Axel where it's like, well, crap, they're doing this. We, we can't do that. Or did you see stuff that you were like, that's clever. We should try to work that in and mention it. There was or one. T- does your stuff actually beat their stuff? <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, there was one tip of the hat that we. One thing that I liked, and I, I liked it, and apparently Ron Moore liked it too because he used it in Battlestar Galactica. Uh, one of the things that we have is that the Romulans. Um, have a have a weapon in which they can take over the coalition ship's computer systems. Yeah, that was used in <clears throat> the Romulan War books, um, and that's just a really good dramatic device to try to keep you know our side um, on on its heels during the whole conflict. You know, th- through a large part of the conflict. So we, you know, I'm not going to lie, we we 
did uh, have a we did have a, a tip of the hat um, to the um, that piece of technology where the Romulans could, in fact, um, hijack uh, coalition computer systems. And there's a logic for it. Um, no pun intended, uh, because um, the logic is that, you know, the Romulans speak sort of the same language as the Vulcans do, mm-hmm. and they have an insight into how they think, and they are able to hijack Vulcan ship computer systems. Mm-hmm. And in our story, um, we sort of take this um, notion that the other major powers in the region, like the Andorians, like the Tellarites, have all spent years sort of stealing from the Vulcans. <laughs> and so when the Romulans use their weapon, it affects everybody's ships, but not Earth's as much because mm. the Vulcans wouldn't share their technology with Earth. <laughs> so you remember that was a big sort of thing in Enterprise yeah. where you know the Vulcans wouldn't reveal all their secrets to Earth because you know we were reckless and they didn't trust us to be able to handle the info. That actually works in favor of Earth in our story because of all the major alien powers, it's the human ships that are the um, least impacted by the Romulans mm-hmm. uh, secret weapon. I like that. I, that that's a lot different from the book because in the book they're like, well, let's explain why TOS looks the way it does and make the ships be bulky so that, you know, the Romulans can't take them over. And that's why we get the enterprise uh, as the way it looks in the original series. Hmm. Uh, and I, I actually like your, your explanation um, better. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks. I mean, it's just, it's one of those things where, you know, when we see saw story threads that existed in the other show, we tried to pick that up and run with it. Yeah. And that was our, our, you know, when you agree with it or not, but that's, that's our rationale is don't get me wrong. The Romulans do have a way to incapacitate, Starfleet ships, mm-hmm. but they can recover faster and get back in the game. Whereas the Vulcan, the Andorian, the Tellarite ships are essentially helpless and you just get picked off. Mm-hmm. So um, that is <laughs> one of the reasons why Earth has problems keeping the other worlds in the coalition. Because, you know, the Andorians are like, why should we keep throwing ships into this? You know, uh, we can't fight back. And uh, Vulcans are saying the same thing. Plus, the Vulcans are also going through a massive social transformation in their society. If you remember where we were in season four of yeah. Enterprise, um, the, the Cyrenites, yeah. yeah, the Cyrenites took over the government, and they are they have a pacifist ideology and a non-colonial um, ideology. So, the Vulcans um, are a hard sell to get them to. Uh, come be allies in the war. And for most of our film, Earth is by, is on its own. Um, spoiler alert. Yeah. So uh, there's a critical moment where that, where that changes. Um, but um, that's, that's kind of what the scenario is. So. And Porthos agrees, I guess I heard. <laughs> <laughs> that would be one of my four legged children. Interrupting. <laughs> so you mentioned the, the Indiegogo a little bit and uh, what you're raising money for, but can you just reiterate that and uh, maybe tell us more about like why you're you're 
you're raising more money. Uh, and then, you know, once it's over, will people still be able to donate? Uh, sure. I mean, you know, I'm not going to bury the lead. The reason why we're raising money on Indiegogo is my wife told me I was not allowed to spend any more of my own. So <laughs> that's where we are. Um, the, the producer brought down the budget acts. So we're on to Indiegogo. Yeah, we've, we've financed uh, a lot of it out of my own pocket. Um, that, that well is run dry. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but we have gotten most of our footage shot, but you know, people who know how film work, um, know that there's more to just shooting footage. There's, you know, you got to edit that and you got to digitize it and you got to, there's, there's color grading that has to happen. There's fully work and special effects have to be added. And, um, you know, I have a lot of, I have a lot of skills in production, but not all of those. And not the least of which is the visual effects. Um, we have a lot of visual effects. We have, we've got one completed sequence that nobody has seen yet it has 40 sh- effect shots in it. Wow. Um, that's for one, arguably one scene of the movie. So, um, so we've, we've got a lot of shots laid out. There's a lot of territory to cover. That's primarily how um, and why we're doing the Indiegogo. Um, and, you know, if, if we don't hit our goals, you know, the film's still going to come out. It's just not going to be at, that level at the scale we wanted it to be. And there's going to have to be some rewriting um, and we'll have to retool some things. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as one thing that's neat about our Indiegogo campaign is we have some kind of cool perks. Um, if you, I don't know if you've checked the page out, but mm-hmm. um, at some perk left, first of all, anybody who donates at $10 or above um, gets access to, Memory Alpha, which is a section of our website where we keep extra content. Um, we just rolled that out last week, and um, we've got trailers on there. Um, there's uh, special effects tests. There's a behind the scenes, um, and we're going to be adding more stuff to it. And uh, the next thing that's coming down the pike, and this may have already happened by the time um, your podcast airs, but one of the other things coming down the pike are um, we're doing some audio dramas that um, fill in the gaps in the story that we're not able to tell either because we don't think we're going to have enough money to show them or we're restricted by the guidelines and the yeah. amount of time we can spend. Yeah. So just remember this flashback a little bit. You may not know this, but um, this, the, the Romulan war was originally conceived as 16 episodes and each of the episodes was supposed to run between anywhere from three to 12 minutes long, which puts us well over um, what we're allowed to uh, sort of produce for under the new guidelines. Mm -hmm. So what we've kind of looked at is stripping the story down. So we're consistent with the guidelines on the format and then also still telling some of these episodes but through audio dramas um, in in a different format. And those are going to be on Memory Alpha where only our, um, where only our supporters who have backed us are going to be able to enjoy those. Hmm. So that's a little extra storytelling content. And then again, like I said, some trailers, um, storyboards, 
um, some early versions of the script. So there'll be a whole bunch of things. And, and that is all um, available to folks at $10 and above on the Indiegogo campaign. And um, one of the other perks that I've heard a lot about people with positive feedback is you can be in the movie. Um, you, We've got a, a, a way where um, we've got some, some dialogue written and we can send you your copy of your script. Um, we'll give you some basic instructions. Like if you have a green screen, go stand in front of it. If you don't pick a dark wall um, and here's your lines and try to sell them as best as you can. And um, we will try to include those into the film. That's one of the perks. So if you've ever wanted to be in a Star Trek fan film, um, here's your chance. You can you can be a donor and um, get yourself in the film. We also have a perk where people's voices can be in the film. If you don't want to be on camera and but you want to bark some orders or um, you want to run from an an oncoming Romulan horde, uh, you can do some voices for us through the same way. We send you some lines, script, you record it on your phone or a digital recorder, get that back to us. We'll process it and, and slip it into the movie. So that's one of the things we're trying to do is actually engage. When we think of a fan film, we want to try and engage the fans and, and see if they want to be in it or be heard in it. Um, and hopefully, you know, that's going to be appealing to some folks. Um, and um, we're hoping that that separates us a little from what folks have done in the past. Your your Indiegogo ends in a couple of days as of this recording. Uh, do you plan on extending it? Um, I met with my team the other day, and um, yes, the the belief is that if we can't hit our goal, that we should try to extend the fundraising, um, mainly because. You know, we really do want to get it to that quality level and get the whole story told. Mm -hmm. So um, it's interesting time for fan film fundraising. Um, I, I think fans who are inclined to donate uh, in a post-guidelines world aren't sure what they're going to get. Um, they, they, I think a lot of people in the past contributed to some of these big budget productions because they knew they were going to see, um, George Takei or Michelle Nichols or John Delancey or, you know, um, these, these, Tony Todd, you know, they, they, these were sort of known quantities, um, with acting talent and just in the sci-fi community. And I don't think you're going to see that anymore. And I think a lot of people who are inclined to donate, aren't really sure if, you know, that's how they, if they want to contribute in, in, in that environment where you don't really know you're going to get that pro acting or yes. there's, you know, these memorable actors that they love so much and grew up with. So, um, and then the last fan film, you know, that had a Kickstarter was the Holy core, which looked great. Um, and they weren't able to finish and hit their goal. And I mean, all of that, I think is a little, little troubling, um, you know, there's some really good work being done, um, and it, it's hard to do this entirely with volunteers. So it, especially if you want to deliver at that quality that people are becoming demanding now. Yeah. So, um, 
So, yes, the short answer is, you know, if we're not hitting our goal, we need $10,000. If we don't hit that $10,000 by the time the Indiegogo ends, we will probably extend it or look at another platform. So, um, yeah. And and all that means, by the way, that um, you'll still get a film. Um, It will still be at that quality level. It just might not be when we thought we were going to get it. You know, our original... We've, we estimated that if we got all the money we needed, um, that we could have this thing put together and finished by the end of the year. So um, if we can't hit hit that fundraising target, that's going to push that timeline back, mm-hmm. unfortunately. But I'm, I'm more – I think it's more important to deliver on the quality than to deliver on it fast. Yeah. So I would rather get it right than get it quick. So um, – if that means we have to do a couple more um, fundraising campaigns or take donations through the website or whatever, then that's that's how we'll go. All right. Well, Bill, do you want to do your lightning round? Uh, yeah, I suppose I should do the lightning round, shouldn't I? Just <laughs> lightning round. Yeah, just uh, off the top of your head, you know, gut reaction kind of thing. Quick questions. Um. Who who uh, are you ready? <laughs> I am like I, I probably need another shot of synthahol, but yes, I think I'm ready. All right. Who did you, did you who did you prefer as a Romulan, Mark Lennard or Andreas Katsulis? <sighs> Andreas Katsulis. Good choice. <laughs> um. Well, just kind of got more screen time, and he really did some some. You got uh, more layers of the character, I thought. Yeah. Do you prefer the look of the Romulan ships or the Klingon ships or the ones that they both use? What era are we talking? <laughs> so uh, not so much a lightning round. It's a it's a dealer's choice. Dealer's, dealer's choice. Dealer's choice. Thunder uh, round. I like that. Thunder round. Yeah, thunder round. Uh, I am a fan of the Klingon ships. I do like the Klingon ships. Um, yeah, it, regardless of era. So you use the Daedalus in your films. Um, would you like to have seen more Star Trek with spherical hulls, or do you prefer the saucer? I prefer the saucer, but um, the Daedalus is it's, – it's an interesting, unusual design. And remember, it was the precursor to the saucer. And um, I think it would have been a good, um, a good touch and a good – nod to sort of Jeffrey's um, legacy if we'd have seen um, if we'd have seen the spherical. All right. Vulcans have a neck pinch. What do you call the Romulan finishing move? (laughs) Uh, uh, Being stabbed by the honor blade, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) If you were a Romulan and your world blew up, would you go back in time to kill Spock or would you come up with a different plan? <laughs> well, if I'm a Romulan, I don't. There's no temporal prime directive, so uh, and yeah, I'm, I don't know. Good question. I'm probably I'd probably have to go after, go back and and take down Spock. All right. Though we all know, or those of us in the know know that Spock tried to prevent the disaster. Yeah, uh, that happened to Romulus, and um, Nero either didn't know or didn't care about that. 
was holding the wrong person responsible um, for the destruction of Romulus. I like to say that um, it's too bad that Nero ended up in, uh, you know, as Kirk was being born. It, he, if he had shown up during the uh, the Earth Romulan War, then you know he could have easily, you know, gotten his revenge, and uh, there would have been no Federation. Yeah, that's always the thing with time travel, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I, I, it seems like the only people that ever figured that out were the Borg in First Contact. But, yeah, yeah there's multiple places where you could easily go back, and uh, that's always the rub with time travel, which is, again, maybe not, you know, something you, you want to keep hanging your hat off of in Star Trek is mm-hmm. time travel stories. Yeah. All right, so the question of the week uh, how many wives did Dr. Flocks have? Was it three, two, or five? I'm going to say three. But the real question is, is why would Flocks have more than one wife? <laughs> huh. I'm going with three. Okay. Bill? I'm, I'm just going to follow his lead. Part of me wants to say five. He had like five wives, and each wife had seven husbands or something crazy like that. But I'm, I'm going to follow I'm going to follow Mark's lead, and I'm going to say Three. I'm going to go with his answer. So you're both right. It's three. And each wife had three husbands. Uh, so then the bonus question is, how many children did he have? Forty-two. <laughs> well, just his, his own biological children, not counting the children that everyone else had. Each man has three wives. Each wife has three husbands. Each husband has three sacks. Each sack has three kids in it. Each kid has three kittens. Maybe that's why I'm. That feels like maybe that's why you put it in the when you gave us a choice. Five sounds familiar there. Like he maybe he has five kids and three wives. What do you think, Bill? I, I want to say I want to say seventeen or twelve or some big two digit <laughs> number. I really do want to say it's like a two digit number. But, Mark's right. Yeah, of course. Yeah. It it's five children. Yeah, that's why I put it in there, trying to help you. So I, I was looking at this earlier, and I can't remember. I don't want to go back to memory alpha and look it up. But yeah, all together they have like some, some huge number. It's like seventy-one or something children. I don't know. It's it's a gigantic number. Oh, like in the extended family. Yeah, yeah. So if you count each husband, each wife combination, yeah, all together they have some. huge gigantic number <laughs> wow yeah. can you imagine the family reunions there Jeez. Yeah. i feel like that was a there was a joke about that in the episode it might have been even that <laughs> so there you <laughs> go that, that was the question of the week well done please go to www.theromulanwar.com <laughs> where we have uh all the information that um, you need to contribute and some information about the world of the story and we hope folks will please try to contribute so we can keep fan films a thing. Um, we, if we have too many that, that sort of crash and burn, I, I'm worried that that will discourage people from, from doing, doing them, at least you know quality ones. So we're hoping folks will support us. And that's all the time we have today, kids. Thanks for tuning in. This has been The Final Frontier, a Trixphere production. Check us out on YouTube, in the iTunes Store, and on Google Play. 
follow us on Facebook, like us on Facebook, suggest someone to replace me since I can never pronounce anybody's name right. Um, <laughs> be sure to go to theromulanward.com and check out Mark's latest film, or first film, or newest film, his fan film, and uh, donate to his Indiegogo. All right, so let me NPR this up a little bit. To continue enjoying quality programming such as this, we require donations from viewers like you. So if you could find it in your heart, we don't have a tote bag, but you can access some special features through the Indiegogo site. Your donation can help ensure that quality fan films continue to be made in the years that come. This is NPR. <laughs>